This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Chief Economist at the Australia Institute and author Dr Richard Dennis. Richard joined me to talk about his newly updated book, Econobabble, How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. Richard describes Econobabble as the incomprehensible economic jargon politicians and commentators use to dress up their self-interest as the national interest, as well as to make the absurd seem inevitable or the inequitable seem fair. Richard takes us through how Econobabble works and how it essentially shuts down democratic debate. We're going to be chatting with Dr. Richard Dennis, who is joining me once more on the show to talk about his newly revised book, Econobabble, How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. It's out through Black Ink. It was originally released, I believe, in 2015 and has been thoroughly updated with some very useful and relevant uh, stories and facts, including the coronavirus pandemic, as well as the coalition government's complete change from being allergic to debt and deficit to somehow embracing it completely. So thank you for coming back onto the program. Hi there, Richard, and how are you? Good morning. Very well, thanks. And a foggy, foggy Canberra. Yeah, I was just quite surprised to hear that the visibility is pretty much zero. Uh, yes, I hope no one's trying to fly to Canberra today because <laughs> I'm confident in saying your plane will be late. That's funny. We did see on the news that uh, the journalists were greeting the politicians coming into Canberra for the sitting week and there's going to be obviously a lot going on and there has been a lot going on in Canberra since the budget and a lot of discussion about the coalition and whether they have somehow become a labour light, which which is a little bit amusing or maybe not amusing to <laughs> Labor people. So first of all, Richard, I thought maybe we could just um, touch on the budget and then bring in your book and the themes of your book, Econobabble. But first up, I really am dying to know what your take on the budget is, given that uh, we've heard so much of the mainstream media embrace it and to say how positive it has been, although obviously with some caveats to say that, for example, in aged care, not enough was done, but it kind of seems that a lot of people have become quite grateful when anything is done. <laughs> well, it's all about expectation management, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, let's be clear, this, this government was elected eight years ago promising to repay the debt and fix the budget emergency we were in. Uh, let me just choose my words carefully here. We've been lied to for a decade about the problems Australia faces by this government. We were just flat out lied to. Now, the best news in the budget is that the biggest lies have stopped. So, you know, hooray, pop the champagne corks. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it is good that the government abandoned the idea that the small budget deficits that we'd been delivering were a big problem, that the amount of debt we'd accumulated was a big problem, uh, and that the one thing we needed to do to get the country on track was deliver a budget surplus. That is an enormous U-turn from this government, uh, and they should be congratulated for making it. But at the same time, we should never forget who it was that was driving in the wrong direction for so long, you know, so fast, so enthusiastically, so confidently. You know, you can just imagine being in the car with your dad saying, you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way. You drive the wrong way for eight years, 
he finally does a U-turn and says, where's my praise? Yes. Um, so, so, yeah, big picture, the government abandoned the lie that the small budget deficits that we had and the small amount of public debt we had, and I mean small by historic standards, I mean small by international standards, I mean small from economic, from most economists, actual economists' point of view, we've stopped worrying about that. That's great. But is it a great budget? No, it's not, because, yep, we're spending a lot more money than we're planning to. That's good. Um, might seem ridiculous to say this, but we're not actually spending enough we had a whole royal commission into what the aged care sector needed and the treasurer's office came up with uh, less than half of that. So was the royal commission wrong or is Josh Frydenberg wrong? So is it good that he's spending half of what the royal commission said or is it bad that he's spending half of what the royal commission said? I suppose it just depends how well you want your nan looked after. So, yep, they've done a U-turn, great They've started spending money on things that they said they were going to spend less money on. Great. Have they gone far enough? Not even close. And, of course, what they've really done is they've, you know, they've, they've locked in enormous tax cuts for high-income earners that are, that are still coming after the next election. But that's the poison pill in this budget. And, as always, they're just, like with climate change and everything else, they're just kicking the problem down the road. So... The tax cuts they're putting in are far more expensive than the new spending, but guess what we're talking about? <laughs> Small amounts of new spending, not the enormous tax cuts that go overwhelmingly to high-income earners. Yes, and I think a lot of the cynics out there would say that this big spending budget is perhaps more of a political tool, and as we know, a budget is a political tool, but that people have pointed to the fact that an election is semi-looming, it could be at the end of this year or at the beginning of next year, and that it could be before the next budget in May uh, of 2022. So is there any potential for this to be a kind of fluke or a rare moment of deciding to back back on austerity? Do you think there's any chance they might do an about-face again? Oh, I think they'll do an about-face. Look, there's no doubt that post-election they'll they'll surprise themselves and say, oh, we didn't realise that locking in enormous tax cuts uh, and locking in new spending uh, was locking us into very big deficits forever. Oh, that's not what we meant to do. We just did that to get us through the crisis. Should we wind back the tax cuts? No. Should we wind back the spending on poor people? Oh, I think we should, don't you? So, yeah, that's what's coming. <laughs> it's crystal clear. Let's not be surprised. But that won't happen until after the next election. And, you know, that's that's an opportunity for Labor, uh, I think, is to kind of ask the question, who do you actually trust to keep helping your nan? You know, because yeah. these people are promising to help your nan, but you reckon they mean it? Or you reckon they just want you to vote for you but, so they can stick around to implement tax cuts, which, to be clear, will give $9,000 a year $9,000 a year tax cuts to, to people earning 200000 bucks. How tidy is that? It's mm, enormous. And to be honest, I don't think anyone on two hundred grand really thinks that nine grand is something that they deserve, surely. Oh, you don't understand. It's not about deserve. <laughs> it's about incentive. It's about incentive. If we don't give the highest income people in the country a big pay rise, they won't keep working. Yeah. Like we actually have a whole economic story, you know, to, to, to plug my book, a whole 
a whole chapter on Econobabble in this story. And the story is it's not that I think rich people deserve the tax cuts. It's that if I give them tax cuts, they will work harder. So we can grow the economy. And this is, this is literally trickle-down economics, right? Yeah. We're going to give tax cuts to high-income earners and that'll make them work harder. Uh, and and when they spend all that money, they'll actually be helping us. They're doing us a favour. We're helping ourselves by helping them. And, of course, here we are <laughs> with pubs saying they can't find cleaners. Well, maybe offering them a higher wage would encourage more people to want to be a cleaner. Oh, no, 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 it only works at the top. It only works at the top. If high-income earners don't get a tax cut, they won't keep working hard but we don't need to offer a wage rise or a big tax cut to low-income earners. We'll just sort of bitch and moan about uh, about skill shortages and kind of blame the lazy unemployed. Yeah, it is very convenient and it's so familiar. I know many people listening will have heard these kind of lines and uh, discussions and perhaps it's been packaged in a more polite way than the way we're talking about it. But that is the beauty of your book, Econobabble, because it's not trying to be polite, it's just being direct and honest about the situation, <laughs> which is very refreshing. I always try to be polite. I always <laughs> try to be polite, but I don't think it's polite to lie to people. So. I agree. Uh, so, yes, I, I think I'm always polite, but I am at times blunt. I agree with that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I should rephrase. You're not. You're polite, but in the best way, not in the British way. Yeah. No, I'm only joking. I mean, look, yeah. it's, we need to have an honest, democratic conversation about what we want more of and what we want less of and who needs more money and who needs less money. This is not complicated and it's not even economics, right? This is just what democracies are about. So in Sweden and Denmark and Norway and Finland, they don't offer enormous tax cuts to their highest income earners and they do spend a lot more money than us on things like free childcare and free... There's no private health insurance. And they've made democratic choices that are similar to the choices that we made in Australia in the 80s, all right, but we changed our mind. Now, that's okay. There's nothing in the Constitution that says we have to be nice. There's nothing in the Constitution that says we need to help women get back into work. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that your nan shouldn't eat chicken nuggets six nights a week, all right? There's nothing in the Constitution that says how we should behave. We're one of the richest countries in the world. We can be like Sweden and Denmark and Finland if we want, or we can be a low-tax, low-spending country like America, you know, or a whole bunch of Southeast Asian countries. Right? It's you know, I'm quite upfront about this in the book and in all of my talks. There's no right here. I know which I prefer. I know what I think is right, but it's a democracy. We have to make this choice. And if we're going to choose to give people earning 200 grand a tax cut and pretend that we don't have enough money to, to help people in aged care or disability care, can we strip away the polite concealment and just say, it's not that we can't spend more money on aged care or disability care. We don't want to. Right? Yep. Just look ourselves in the mirror and say that. And if you don't like saying it, stop doing it. Exactly, and also say what you've said, which is we're going to give nine thousand dollars in tax cuts to people earning over two hundred grand. 
Richard, you talk about econobabble and you give us a bit of a definition. I feel like it's probably a great time to bring that in. So you say the language of econobabble includes two things, incomprehensible economic jargon and apparently simple words that have been stripped of their normal meanings. <laughs> and you go on to say things like, you know, efficiency is an example. You also go on to say that economists aren't meant to tell us what is right or wrong or what we should do with something. They're meant to present us with options of here's what you could do, here are what the positives and the negatives are of each option. And it should be, in theory, up to the general population and the politicians who represent the population to make a decision and then, as you go on to say, to make a case to their constituents to say this is why we've made this decision. I mean, this all sounds really lovely and wonderful. Why and how does that not happen in real life? Because even on budget night, if anyone took a brief glance at the conversations with economists, everyone had an opinion about what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, oh, and let's be clear, as, as an economist, I didn't give up my citizenship rights to have a view about what I think is right and wrong. But what we need to be clear about is that that view is my view as a citizen. It's it's not the received wisdom of my scientific discipline. It's not. Right? There's not an economics textbook for sale in Australia that disagrees with what I'm saying. In fact, every economics textbook in Australia says the beautiful thing about economics is that economics is about how the world is, not how the world should be. Right, so we we say it's uh, it's it's you know that's that's the uniqueness. We we actually teach students this. I'm not making it up. We say that economics is unique amongst the social sciences. All those other social sciences, a bit you know airy fairy with their hearts. Well, here in economics, we do the head stuff, right? We're we're the serious social scientists, and we do is not should. Right? This is this is literally the first lesson in your first week of every economics class. We do is, not should. And by the end of the degree, every student's out there telling everyone what they should do. <laughs> you know, it's beautiful. It's the best propaganda you can imagine. Oh, no, it's a free, you know, we're into free markets and individual choice. You're all free to do what you want. Oh, I think we should pay more tax and spend more on my name. You can't do that. You can't. That will ruin the economy. No, it won't. Yes, it will. No. So it's genius. Like, yeah. And, and it's literally abusive. Like, you know, it's <laughs> gaslighting in the extreme because we the whole time we're telling everyone what they should do, the whole time we're telling people what they should do, we tell them we're not doing, we're not telling them what they should do. It's genius. Yeah. It's worked for decades. But it doesn't work in other countries. Like That's the thing. Like This is not how Australia was always run, and it's not how other countries are run. This is our choice. This is who we are. I want to bring in a, a really great quote from the book. You say, whether the econobabblers are talking about, quote, what the markets want or, quote, what the economy needs or what a responsible government must do, their language and metaphors are systematically used to limit the range of options that are sensible or pragmatic or, most frequently, responsible. So you kind of you're pointing to something that I know a lot of people listening would feel, which is, oh, every time they talk about economics, it feels like there's a clear right or wrong answer, and I didn't study economics, so I can't have an opinion for fear of being wrong. 
wrong. And yep. then it kind of shuts down debate and you have this idea that, well, clearly, you know, the coalition are right. They're the economic managers. They're the sensible ones. Labor has always been the big spenders. And it just goes back into these, you know, default narratives that Econobabble seeks to reinforce. So, I mean, with some of the examples maybe that from the book, one of them, you, you mentioned markets, and I loved the section about whether markets have feelings. Um, can we talk about that? Because I'm really frustrated about this kind of weird, almost godlike creature called the market that does have sentiment and feelings apparently even on the nightly news. Absolutely. And again, you know, this is not an accident. Uh, this has been developed over decades. It's been re reinforced by powerful people in politics and the media and business for decades. So, you know, when you strip it away, it's almost a bit embarrassing how silly it looks. <laughs> but, you know, again, you know, we need to come out of the basement, people. It's okay. Like, come up into the sunlight. Mm. So, yeah, next time you hear someone say markets insist that we need to do something or we have to do this or the markets will punish us. And I'm not making this up. If you look carefully, you'll see it all the time. In fact, a lot of the stuff now is if we don't start paying down the debt, the foreign money markets will punish us. The ratings agencies will punish us. You know, the markets will react angrily if we don't and yeah, it's it's you know it's embarrassing to think of it like this. But you know, this is like Zeus and Apollo sending sending thunderbolts down if we if we don't make a sacrifice of the goat. You know, we we yeah. have to appease the gods on the mountaintop, and if we don't, then we brought their wrath upon us. You know, and. Of course, that sounds ridiculous when I say it out loud. But in the book, I, I just go through all these examples of, you know, we 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 have to reform the thin capitalization regime, or otherwise, you know, foreign foreign investors will continue to shun uh, the Australian economy. You know, translates as if we don't cut taxes for multinationals, uh, the owners of multinational companies will get less money. You know, it's it's not complicated, but that's why they make it complicated, because they know if we went to the next election saying, so we've got a big choice to make. Do we give a tax cut to people earning over 200 grand or do we spend a lot more money on health and education? What do you reckon, Australians? Now, in a democracy, that is literally the question you'd ask. Mm. But, of course, we can't say that. So we need to say, well... The government has a tax reform agenda designed to uh, fix the structure of the entire tax system to prepare Australia for the 21st century and the challenges we face with globalisation. And the Labor Party just wants to increase taxes and make us uncompetitive, which, which, which should we do? And, you know, a whole bunch of people actually take our democracy far more seriously than our politicians do. So they think, oh, I don't want to be uncompetitive and I don't want my kid to lose their job because I was so soft-hearted that I wanted to, you know, spend money on health instead of give rich people a tax cut. So, yeah, I, I, I suppose I have to be responsible here. But, you know, the, the coalition are relying on the fact that the only responsible people left in Australia are the voters. <laughs> Like they're, they're, they're not behaving responsibly, but they're banking on the fact that voters will. Well, they're not behaving responsibly, and you point out some pretty great examples of where they fall down. And sometimes it is quite... Uh 
I guess, bipartisan. And one of those examples, although I know the Liberal Party would be even more gung-ho in this area, was defence, um, where you'd say that the Morrison government will spend more than $270 billion on defence, including $9.3 billion to develop new hypersonic weapons, $5 billion for a new undersea surveillance network and $7 billion for a new space-based defence capabilities. You then point out a really interesting point, which maybe, I mean, I certainly wasn't aware of, but it makes a lot of sense. You say, uh, while that is more than the direct budgetary costs of responding to this once-in-a-century pandemic of COVID-19, there has been relatively little public or political debate. I mean, it's very true, and I wasn't really aware that we're spending more on defence than the entire pandemic response. Yep, exactly, because we're that kind of people, you know. So let, let, let me kind of... So all of that, you know, we don't debate these things, and that's, I think, a failing of our democracy. And by the way, I'm not saying we shouldn't spend money on defence. I actually think we should. Um, I'm saying that when we want to drop a lazy 200 bill... If we all want to, or when I say we all, I mean, if, if everyone in Parliament wants to spend $200 billion on something, it doesn't rate a mention. Yeah. It's not a big deal. It's not a big number. But if we don't want to spend uh, $5 million on a domestic violence shelter, oh, where will the money come from? Oh, the money. All oh, the AAA credit ratings wouldn't like if we just went around being willy-nilly spending $5 million to help women fleeing violence, where would it end? So when, when we want to spend a lot of money, we do. We always have. We always will. We're a very, very rich country, 13th, 14th biggest economy in the world. Right? We're not a small country. We're a rich country beyond our comprehension. Uh, so when we want to spend money, we do, which is good. Uh, and when we don't want to spend money, we don't say, I don't want to spend money. We pretend we can't afford it. Now, let me give you another analogy for defence um, or a contradiction. Um um, I, the number of people who've told me in the last 20 years that the problem with climate change is it's a, it's a wicked problem, a wicked problem. And notice we're, na we're blaming the problem here, not yeah. people. So it's a wicked problem. And why climate change is such a wicked problem that's so hard for democracy is that we have to spend money up front, costs are up front, to protect ourselves from something that's in the future and also something that's uncertain in the future. So we tell ourselves that in Australia, tackling climate change is really hard because you've got to spend some cash now to protect yourself in the future from a poorly specified threat. And I'm told that's just political suicide, except that we're going to spend $200 billion to build 12 new submarines to replace the six we haven't used yet. Right, and, 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 and when you say, okay, so if I build 12 new submarines and spend $200 billion building and maintaining them, will that make Australia safe? Oh, no, no, of course not. That's just a down payment on, you know, a, a very risky world. Oh, okay. And, and will the submarines, you know, will they, will they be the right deterrent that we'll need in 15 years' time when another country that may or may not deploy weapons that haven't been invented yet... Will the subs be the thing we need? Well, they could be. They very well could be. And imagine if we didn't have them, how silly we'd feel. So all of the arguments you've ever heard about why we, quote, can't afford to or it's reckless to spend money protecting ourselves from climate change 
all of those arguments are directly contradicted by the arguments we use to justify far more, far greater spending on defence every year. It's as if everything we get told about this is crap. Yeah, well, it is. And like you go through in the chapter on climate change with some really excellent examples, including a very similar one that we've just mentioned about insurance and the fact that, you know, most people will buy a house or buy a car and get insurance for the potential time where something might get flooded or there might be a fire, uh, any kind of thing, even a contents insurance if they might have something stolen. You know, these are things that everyday Australians do and the government does in terms of an unknown potential threat that may never eventuate that we spend money on upfront in order to prevent um, future catastrophe or being in a much worse financial position than we are now, for example, if you're thinking about a house. Uh, And it reminded me, you know, to think about a really, you know, pivotal moment. I know a lot of people thought it was a pivotal moment um, in terms of the summer bushfires we did see that were so terrible. And so many of people's houses were destroyed. Many people do not have proper shelter and houses to even go to now uh, in the country. And so I was wondering about you know, the fact that we had this massive moment where there seemed to be pressure on the government to do something about it, uh, but then we'd quickly back away and our memory kind of erodes for those people who didn't have it directly affect them in terms of their livelihood. I guess the explanation must be all in your chapter on climate change, but maybe you could draw out some of those reasons why the coalition government continues to bang on about coal, to bang on about why we can't do something even when literally the fires um, are burning bushes and homes around us. Yeah, look, I'll I'll come to the insurance bit in a minute, but there's a really simple answer for why the government is willing to spend $10 billion a year. It's the Australian Institute's latest estimate, $10 billion a year subsidising fossil fuels while pretending it would be a bad idea to subsidise electric cars or a bad idea to subsidise renewable energy, right? The reason they do it is because they want to. Okay, and that's actually what democracy is all about. People don't want to become prime minister so they can sit in the big chair and have a cost-benefit analysis tell them what they should or shouldn't do all day. Guess what? People actually want to shape the country they live in. That's why they aspire to power. And when they get there, they do a whole bunch of things that they want to do. And what this government wants to do is protect its friends in the fossil fuel industry and slow down renewable energy, uh, not just in Australia, but around the world. Because when other countries sign up for net zero targets, they just signed up to not buy our coal. So we don't want other countries doing that. So that's why we're not making a net zero commitment, because we don't want anyone else to. We're trying to make it hard and slow for the rest of the world to stop buying our coal. Now, you know, why? I don't know. Why do the Japanese love killing whales so much? Why do Americans think machine guns make school kids safe? Like, all countries do crazy shit. Like, let's just admit this. But different cultures, different cultures and different countries choose to do different crazy shit. And unfortunately, the stuff that we've chosen to do, so American gun culture kills Americans, Australian coal culture is causing global climate change. So I I care even more. 
Um, but look, back to insurance. Yeah, look, there's about a one in 10,000 chance that my house will burn down this year. And just to be clear, I, I have insurance for my house. I think it's a good idea because I'm a conservative, risk-averse person like most Australians, except when it comes to climate change. So there's a one in 10,000 chance your house is going to burn down and you pay a couple of thousand bucks a year to protect yourself from that probability. And at the end of the year, when your house doesn't burn down, not many people go, oh, idiot, wasted my money, didn't crash my car this year, house didn't burn down this year, what am I blowing my dough on this stupid insurance for? But for decades, and you know, actually the debate's moved on a bit, but it's, we still need to call it out. For decades, we were told by allegedly smart people that, oh, imagine how silly we'd feel if we invested in renewable energy and tried to tackle climate change and, you know, there's a one in a hundred chance that climate change isn't going to happen. Imagine how silly we'd feel if we took reasonable steps to prepare for a catastrophe so we could avoid it. Imagine how silly we'd feel if we kind of battened down the hatches and the cyclone didn't come. Imagine how silly we'd feel if we insured our car and didn't crash it. Like, this is not how humans think. But when it comes to climate change, when it comes to climate change, the alleged conservatives have taken this radical approach to risk of let's just suck it and see. Sure, all of the evidence says there's a cyclone heading our way, but imagine how silly we'd feel if we kind of, you know, cancelled the music festival and put the shutters up and, and, and then and the cyclone missed us. Let's focus on on the regret that we'd feel if, if something good happened rather than how stupid we'd feel when the predictable happened. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it reminded me of the ending of that chapter where you were saying that really we've had that debate about carbon policy and carbon pricing um, and using that market-based mechanism. And obviously many people will recall the whole carbon tax discussion, uh, which really dominated politics for so many years and certainly led to the demise of multiple prime ministers and the rise of another prime minister, Tony Abbott. So I really was interested in your pragmatic solutions at the end of that chapter where you were saying carbon pricing is good policy but you don't necessarily, there's no economic or political necessity to win the fight about carbon pricing first, that there are actually other things that we can do now to act on climate change, even within the kind of narrow parameters that we have with this government. Oh, absolutely. And, and just to be clear, because I always get cranky mail when I say this, um, of course, I think we should have a carbon price. Yeah. Like, why, why wouldn't we tax things we want to discourage um, to either spend more money on things we want or to lower taxes on things uh, on something else, right? So it, it really is economics 101 that introducing a carbon price is efficient and equitable and will be good for us all in the long run. That is literally economics 101. But politics 101 in Australia says it's suicide, don't do it, you can't do it. You know, the, the sky will fall on your electoral chances even if it has no impact uh, or significant impact uh, on most of the economy. So if that's the case, if Politics 101 says it's impossible, then, you know, my advice to anyone is, well, why don't we start by removing the subsidies rather, which is which should be easy, why are we subsidising multinational coal companies, I mean, or oil companies? So Shell, you know, the large oil company, 
uh, it, it extracts an enormous amount of uh, gas in Australia, sells it overseas for very high prices, um, haven't paid a cent in tax. I mean, go you, huh? Well done. So, so surely, you know, if, and it's a big if, we were serious about um, uh, tackling climate change, then the first thing we'd do is remove the subsidies that we give to the people causing it, make them pay tax like everyone else does, and sure, I'd slap a carbon price on as well, but I think we should do the easy stuff first. And to give you some orders of magnitude, uh, good, on, uh, good on Julia Gillard and Bob Brown for negotiating a carbon price. We did have one. Emissions did fall. The economy grew. So we know what happens when you put one in. Um, but the carbon price we put in was pretty small. We were very generous to the big polluters. Uh, and the carbon price that we Im implemented, that worked, that drove emissions down, the carbon price we implemented collected less revenue than we gave to the polluters in subsidies. <laughs> Just to give you a order of magnitude for why the subsidy thing matters, even when we had a carbon price, we were still giving the fossil fuel industry money, more money than we were getting back. Mm. Staggering and now not so surprising after reading your book and how many different subsidies we give people. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm having a fantastic conversation, a very enjoyable one, with Dr Richard Dennis, who is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and he's re-released a very much newly revised book. It's called Econobabble, How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. It's out through Black Ink, and uh, as I said before we got Richard on, I think this is actually one of the most practical books you could possibly buy because you'll probably refer to it in everyday life and I hope <laughs> that you will and uh, hopefully this discussion is helping as well Richard. We were just talking about climate change and that is a fantastic part of your book and obviously we won't get to go into all of it but you do really lay out in cold hard facts all of the subsidies that we give, the coal industry, the fossil fuel and gas industry and of course it is very relevant at the moment because, as you say, the coalition government, instead of having a Green New Deal or a renewable plan for the future, you know, to utilise this key moment with a pandemic uh, where government spending is needed to push the economy along, instead of investing in electric cars or renewable energy or batteries, we're actually investing, as you say, in gas, which really doesn't make much sense to myself and probably many others apart from those in the gas industry who are advising the Morrison government. So I thought we should mention that and also say that the Australia Institute is keeping the government on their toes on that and, uh, and actually shining a light on the fallacies of this gas-led recovery. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we've got uh, some new research out today, good articles on it in The Guardian and on the New Daily. The rest of the world, when COVID hit, said, OK, this is a huge problem, but it's also an opportunity. Let's build back better. Let's have green new deals. Like, pretty much everyone in the world saw the opportunity. Like, we knew the government were going to spend a lot of money. And as the Australia Institute said at the time, you know, what you want to do is spend a lot of money uh, on things that are labour-intensive, that deliver lasting benefits in the local areas that need it. So that's how the rest of the world kind of dealt with it. And here in Australia, we went, oh, buggy your Green New Deal, we're going to have a gas-led recovery, a gas-fired recovery, real blokey stuff, burning gas. And we didn't. 
Right. During COVID, uh, or as we recovered from COVID, uh, the Australian economy put on 800,000 jobs, which was uh, because we stimulated the economy, because we spent so much money, it worked. Keynesianism worked. And while we were busy putting on 800,000 jobs, employment in gas declined. It went backwards. <laughs> but but it, it didn't slow our recovery for the simple reason that the gas industry is a tiny, irrelevant employer in the scheme of our national labour force statistics. So, yeah, we didn't have a gas-led recovery. Gas-led gas our retreat, but luckily everyone else advanced. And now, of course, the government's just spent $2 billion on subsidies for oil refinery, $600 million to build a new gas-fired power station, and our analysis out today shows that if you spent that money on higher education, you'd create around 10 times as many jobs. So we did not have a gas-fired recovery. We will not have a gas-led recovery, but we are hosing a lot of money at the gas industry. And if, and it's a big if, but if we were serious about creating a lot of jobs, it obviously would make more sense to spend that money on a labour-intensive industry that delivers lasting benefits like education. But we're not. We're a rich country. We're chucking money at some people, and the gas industry are the lucky beneficiaries of that. Exactly, exactly. And you do talk about and break down the labour statistics for coal mining and fossil fuels and and obviously the fact that, um, for example, the coal industry employs less than 1% of employed Australians, 0.70% to be precise. So uh, although this is significant to the smaller towns, I guess, uh, in rural Australia, for example, that isn't a reason to continue to prop up such industries. And I know there's also... Uh, debate here in Victoria, of course, about the logging industry and that also being something that's heavily subsidised by the state government. And you do point out plenty of examples where industries have been moved on because, um, as you say, we transitioned from horses to cars. We transitioned from film-based cameras to digital cameras. There are a number of moments in time where we've had to change and revitalise, but the key there was that the government was planning for this for a very long time, brought the population along with them and actually made sure that those people affected weren't going to be substantially negatively affected in social and financial ways. So there are really quite clear examples of where the world didn't end, the economy didn't die. Uh, in fact, there are many key examples in your book about how it's actually probably cheaper to uh, focus on renewable energies and better for the economy. Oh, and just to be clear, while I do often make the statistically unarguable point, even though it's controversial in Australia, that coal employs less than 1% of Australian workers. Even though I make that point, that doesn't mean I don't, I, I don't care about those, that small number of workers. I do. I care about the small number of workers uh, that work in any industry. I care about the large number of women that used to work in textile mills that we shut down with no real transition planning. I care about the large number of people that work in the car industry in Victoria and in South Australia that we shut down without real transition planning. Um, I've been on the side of helping workers protect themselves from egregious neoliberal policy my entire adult life. 
So it does stick in my craw when I'm told that I'm the one that doesn't care about the ordinary workers, you know, and, and, and the people that literally goaded the car industry into leaving our shores are, are the true champions of, of blue-collar jobs in Australia. It is, it is sickening in its obscenity, but it works. You know, it's shameless, but it works. So I do care about those workers, absolutely do. And to take coal, for example... I mean, you know, the Australia Institute for years has been pushing a very simple idea. What if we stopped building new coal mines? Not shut down overnight. Let's call shut down all the mines tomorrow the extreme left position. But not build 23 new coal mines in New South Wales like the current government wants to. What if instead of shutting them all down tomorrow or building 23 new ones, what if we did something radical or sensible like just didn't build new ones. That would actually help the workers in existing coal mines, mm. right? <laughs> Building new hotels in Cairns at the moment is not going to help unemployed tourism workers. Building new coal mines in the Hunter Valley is not going to make the world want to buy more of our coal. It's actually going to undercut the price and the labour standards of the people working in existing mines. But so broken is our national debate, so broken is our economic debate, when I say, how would opening 23 new mines help the workers in existing coal mines? I'm a crazy lefty who wants to shut the mines down tomorrow. I just, it doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> when, yeah. you know, in Australia, power is the ability to talk crap and get away with it. <laughs> well, then that means this government is very powerful. They are. Uh, they certainly are. I feel that, and I did make this remark to a friend when I was talking about the vaccine rollout as an example, that you know, if you keep repeating the same lines and you keep repeating a view of reality that isn't actually correct, you actually end up transforming that reality to the one that you have created yourself and people start to believe the reality that you've constructed. So, you know, when we hear that idea of debt and deficit, debt and deficit, um, jobs and growth, jobs and growth, or, you know, the fact that uh, the coalition government hasn't bungled the vaccine rollout and it's just hesitancy and the fact that we had some bad luck with doses at the beginning and AstraZeneca, well, people start to believe it. Then the kind of reality shifts. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, the, the lack of media diversity in Australia plays into that. The rise of social media plays into that. Um, there's all sorts of reasons why it's the case. But, but ultimately, democracy just doesn't work when our elected representatives lie to our face. And it's not obvious. Again, there's nothing in the Constitution that says our democracy should work well. It just gives us some rules. If, if we kind of don't want to take the, the principles of democracy seriously, principles like accountability, principles of, of truthfulness, then our democracy won't work <laughs> and bad things will happen. So, you know, that's up to us. And, you know, I'm an optimist. I, I keep plugging away. Uh, I think we, these problems are fixable. But if ultimately people would prefer a tax cut than to spend more money on their man. Uh, if people really are willing to vote for people that they know are lying to them, then that's as, in the long run, that's as much on us as it is on them. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confident about all of your listeners. I reckon they're doing the right thing. I'm sure yeah. they always talk to their friends and 
and and and vote their conscience. But you know, I'm a bit worried about the person sitting next to them. So, yeah. But anyway, yeah. we we can fix this. We know yes. how to fix it. We have fixed it before. Other countries have fixed it. Well, um, I want to bring in a topic that I just found painfully illuminating and we have talked about it before, but it really did bring it home very, very obviously. And this is the labour market and unemployment. And I did note and see that even on budget night, we were seeing some conversations with uh, business, small business owners of pubs, for example, who were looking for hospitality staff and they couldn't get the right staff to fill these positions. So they were going to be affected in terms of their profits and turnovers. Um, and I did see you, you know, getting on Twitter to talk about that. Uh, so I thought, let's just, let's dive into this fraught area of labour oh. markets and unemployment, oh. Richard. Oh, spare me. I, I think you were watching the ABC. Yeah, I, think I you was. Watched Jer- I think you watched Jeremy Fernandez in interviewing yep. uh, a, a woman in a pub about how hard it was to get staff these days. Uh-huh. I, I rarely throw my shoes around the house, but, oh, that night, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, let's just do a little recap on what capitalism is. In capitalism, people are free to set up their own business where they pay for the costs of that business in order to produce stuff that they sell. And if the price that they get for the stuff they sell is greater than the cost, they make a profit and they get to keep it. This is the whole foundational principle of free markets and deregulation and indeed capitalism. And now in Australia, I, I, I just a day never passes me by where I don't hear a capitalist, a business owner, a person whose job it is to organise production of something so they can sell things at a profit, saying it's my problem as a taxpayer or the government's problem as a bureaucracy. It's my problem that they can't secure cleaners or waiters or other people that they wish they could click their fingers and find. Well, you know, in my job, if I have to find something, I have to go looking for it. I don't blame the government for it. And if there's not an abundance of of trained cleaners or trained waiters that are willing to work at your current wage rate, here's a tip, train some people or pay them a higher wage. The whole idea of a skills shortage is not mentioned in an economics textbook for the same reason that we don't say there's a prawn shortage at Christmas time when the price of prawns goes up. We don't say there's a hotel room shortage on a long weekend when the price of the rooms go up. So if I own a hotel and there's lots of demand for my rooms and and I can't change the supply in the short term, as a hotel owner, I jack up the price and stick the money in my pocket. So how yep. come they're allowed how come they're allowed they don't say, Oh my, there's a there's a hotel room shortage. Can the government come and build some more hotel rooms to compete with me and push the price back down? So the whole point of a flexible deregulated labor market, thirty years of reform, the whole point was that this is the employer's problem. And if training cleaners is beyond you as a hotel manager, I think that reflects badly on you, not on the unemployed. Yep. 
and that's what I loved about the example you gave of a small town and the three pubs uh, in that small town. And you talk about and bring in this idea of wages, and it is obviously throughout the entire chapter and very relevant to the conversation we're having about wages growth and how that will somehow affect profits, how it will affect inflation. I mean, can you really, I guess, explain to us why business are so reluctant to increase wages growth and even why the coalition government seemingly is not interested in wages going up? Uh, Yeah, because they don't want wages to go up. I mean, (laughs) let's be clear. Like, we've spent 30 years changing the rules in Australia, 30 years changing the law in Australia to virtually criminalise going on strike, to to make bargaining excruciatingly complicated. We've spent 30 years reforming, in inverted commas, or just changing the rules in order to lower wage growth. The first thing Erica Betts said when he became employment minister under Tony Abbott, the first thing he said in 2013 was that his job was to prevent a wages explosion. Mission accomplished. All right, can we land the plane on the aircraft carrier, get out the flags? We succeeded in the mission of preventing a wages explosion. And now... We're like the dog that caught the car. We've got a mouthful of muffler. Like we've been chasing wages growth, barking at it for years, saying that high wages would make us uncompetitive. Wrong. Wages are high in all sorts of rich European countries. I've been saying we have to casualise the labour market. We have to lower wages. We have to smash unions. All right. Success. We did it. Oh, how come wage growth is so low? It's not an accident. And let's be clear, the profit share at the moment, a profit share of GDP, is at an all-time high. So, you know, all of these these business owners, what they want is they want their customers to get a pay rise and their staff to get a pay cut. But guess what? Everyone is someone's customer. So... You know, the business community are just shedding crocodile tears. They've fought wages growth for decades and they got what they wanted. And now, according to Treasury, according to the Reserve Bank, according to my good self, low wage growth is one of the major reasons that our economy is growing so slow. We caused it and we don't actually want to fix it. You know, Mm. we we don't want the minimum wage to go up. We've got a freeze on public sector wages and we're, we're still clamping down on unions to prevent them bargaining effectively. How can you have wage growth at a national level if you oppose everyone who wants a pay rise? Yep, it's so true. And and I loved when you were talking also about the key part that we haven't mentioned but we have discussed before, which is the natural rate of unemployment. So the government and Treasury and the RBA making an assumption that there is a natural rate of unemployment that we want to maintain and keep at a certain level. So, you know, whether that's between 600 to 500,000 Australians always being unemployed in Australia, that uh, has a real function in our economy, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, econobabble alert here. This is kind of some, 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 some A-grade stuff. 
Yeah, so in, a, in economics, there's a concept of the natural rate of unemployment or more formally the NERU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Or hang on to your hats. Here's, here's the weirdest one. I'll say it slowly and I'll say it twice. The full employment rate of unemployment. The full employment rate of unemployment. You might think that the full employment rate of unemployment is a non sequitur. You might think that it's zero. You might think yeah. that when we have zero unemployment, we're fully employed. But no, 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 no. There's you thinking English word language, English language words have plain meanings. In Australian economic debates, full employment means about six or 700,000 unemployed people. Mm. And when there's less than that, say we got unemployment down to 200,000, oh, people would panic. People would say, oh, this is terrible. Um, you know, if, if, if there's not a big pool of unemployed people out there, I might not be able to instantly replace my staff if they quit. And if my staff know I can't instantly replace them when they quit, they might ask me for a pay rise and I might have to give it to them. <laughs> you, you've got to keep a big pool of six or 700,000 unemployed out there so that I can keep all my low-paid workers scared of being unemployed themselves. All right, I'm not yeah. making this up. This is Australian economic policy. And when you hear Josh Frydenberg say, oh, I don't think we should start, you know, worrying about the deficit or worrying about interest rates until unemployment starts with a four, what he's saying is, oh, I think the full employment rate of unemployment, I think the natural rate of unemployment might be only four or 500,000 people now. <laughs> he doesn't think it should be zero. And again, people are popping champagne corks saying, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to aim for lower unemployment than we used to. We used to blame the unemployed when there were 700,000 of them, knowing we didn't want any less. Now we're going to blame the unemployed for being unemployed if it gets down to around 500,000. We're a nasty, nasty people. We are, we are. Richard, I know you have to go, so I just want to point out that there is much more to this book than we've even got to, and there is a conclusion where you do give people some um, handy tips of what they can actually do to challenge and get on top of this econobabble, and obviously the first step is knowing it, identifying it and understanding it, but it's great that you do give some practical things that people can do, so I do hope that that is a good enough reason to go out and get this book, Econobabble. How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. Thank you so much, Richard Dennis. It's just been a real delight and uh, entertaining as always. Thank you. And look, I, even if you don't buy the book, my one bit of advice is ask simple questions and demand simple answers. If someone, if someone has to econobabble you to explain something to you, they either don't understand it themselves or they're trying to pull the wool over your eyes. If they're really expert, they can speak as plainly as I have today. I love it. I love it. That's a perfect tip. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a great day, Richard. Great, you too. Thank you. Thank you. I've just been chatting with Dr Richard Dennis. He's the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and we've been talking about his newly revised book, Econobabble, How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. It's been released through Black Ink, and I'm sure you can find it at your bookshops or your libraries.